All right, so I'm Eric Mervis, one of the R2s. Uh, I have kind of two topics. The first one was supposed to be facial fractures and kind of some diagnosis of it, some treatment of it, and pretty much management, some different pitfalls and controversies. And then another lecture that I'm going to do right now is was more of an add-on kind of fill time. So it's going to start with some cases, and you kind of will get an idea of where it's going to go. I think it's going to be quick because we're just going to do a couple cases real quick and then go that. So we'll start with, a lot of times you guys have heard kind of doc needed in trauma B or, you know, doc needed to bed 2. So let's start, we'll start with med students and then work our way up. Um, so let's say you hear this, you guys, everyone else is doing LPs, intubating people, doc to trauma B. You guys are pretty much going to be doctors in three months. So uh, you go to trauma B and this is your patient. Um, and they say, 54-year-old male, respiratory distress. What's kind of first thing you want to do? ABCs. You're not a med student. <laughs> okay, good. Um, what's the uh, difference with this guy? I mean, his A is a little bit different, right? <laughs> right, so um, his A is a little bit different. So, yeah, so you have a trach there. Um, and then obviously, is that a secure airway? I mean, that's part of what you need to kind of figure out when you go assess these people. Um, and then you go with your breathing and your circulation. And so you go, what's his oxygen saturation? 82%. What would be your next kind of step? Or what else do you want to know? Maybe some rest of the vital signs. Okay, there you go. Heart rate, uh, 101. Blood pressure, 140 over 80. Now, what are you going to do? You have a guy who's saying 82%. He's got a trach in. Your vitals are okay. He's not crashing. You don't need to start CPR yet. What, what's your, what would be the first something you guys would do? Uh, okay, there you go. If he's not already on oxygen, if he just has that trach, you can put what we have, trach mask, you can put oxygen on him. Um, or you could do what? Uh, what's something else you could do? Let's say he's on a ventilator. Let's say he's on a ventilator. Turn up the oxygen for standard. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely. Always want to get as much oxygen as you can. Pump it up. Yeah. Well, what would you do if you ICU, trach guy, you're in the SICU, you're on a ventilator, you get this. Okay, yeah. So definitely. Um, first thing you always want to do is if you got this guy who's on a ventilator, disconnect the ventilator. You can always bag him up with 100%. You know, you bag, you can control, you can feel stuff. So that's always what we would do. And then second thing, like Dr. Wu over here was telling us, was suction. A lot of times these people get... Uh, mucus plugs, sometimes they'll get um, some blood down there, and suctioning can obviously bring these people up a lot. They could be at 82%, you suction them out, they get up to 92% pretty easily. Um, other things you want to do is make sure it's patent, make sure it's in the right place. You know, there's, there's ideas that sometimes the trach can be dislodged and it can uh, go in a false passage, what we talk about sometimes. And we'll get into different kind of scenarios and what we're talking about. So. Um, and next steps, we talk about suctioning, put them on oxygen, stuff like that. Next, same time, doc needed in bed 28, okay? And then you get this, 65-year-old male, tracheostomy dislodged. What do you want to do? What do you want to know? What's, um, we can start med students again. That seems to work fun. <laughs> got a guy sitting there, he's got no trach in. You see the trach on the floor. <laughs> Do you want to know anything? Call for help. You want to know what the patient looks like? Yeah. 
Okay, his stats are 60%. Are you concerned, Dr. Havoc? Very much so. Okay. Uh, what's next? What, what would you do? Okay, that's one thing you could do. Let's say this trach, um, let's say Dr. Wu's up in the SICU, this trach is three days old, just popped out three days old. Wu, what would you worry about? Maybe like a stenosis or a growth. Okay. Maybe a false lumen. Yeah, exactly. More the false lumen. In something that new, you worry about just what Dr. Havoc said, just putting the trach back in, which is obviously uh, the easiest thing and maybe the first step to do. But when it's that new, you have to worry about this false passage. Um, Pam, let's say you're up in the MICU. You have the same thing Dr. Wu says. You stick it in there, still 60%. Bagging them, doesn't feel right, feels tight. You're like, what's going on? What, what's something you can do? I mean, same thing. I would try to suction and see mm -hmm. if there's anything there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Trake's out. Trake's falling out. Okay. I mean, you can still stick the... Mm -hmm. Right. And what's like end all, all be, you can't stick the trach back in, you try to put an ET, to do, nothing's going through that little hole. What's the end last thing you can do? We can do it all the time in recess bays. Right, exactly. Just intubate them up top. You got an airway up there. You guys got another hole that you know is going the right way it's going to go. Obviously, if he got the trach because he has a huge mass there, then that's a different situation than if he got the trach because he's been on a vent for three months and he just couldn't get off it. You know, you can always intubate him from up top. And obviously, it's a little bit different if he's setting 90%. He's a 65-year-old guy that has a trach for a while because he's got, um, like, myasthenia and he just has that for preventative reasons. He doesn't even need it. If the trach just falls out and some guy who's breathing well on his own, you can take a lot more time. Doesn't have to be rushed. Okay, we got another bed two. Oh, gosh. Okay, 34-year-old female, bleeding from her neck. Okay? Could be anything. Do you want, what do you want to know? Does she have a knife in her neck? Correct. No. She does not have a knife in her neck. But she did have a trach placed three weeks ago. All right. I'm not going to ask people what we're going to do, but I'm going to just tell you what to do. You get on the phone and you say, please help me, God. And you go from there. And we'll go over what this case is kind of worried about and what we're talking about. So the tracheostomy. Uh, 1546, this guy, Brasavola, was the first one to perform the current trach that we know of now. Um, seemed pretty smart. Good idea. There was actually talks before about this in like, uh, like 1040 BC that there were uh, like guys slitting necks open and they were like sent to prison for that. I don't know why, but it saved their life. This is a quote that I found that I love. 17th century, there was increased usage because of diphtheria epidemic. People got, you know, these big tongues, all this junk back there, they wouldn't be able to breathe. And then they figured out to do this trach and they, this guy described it, Fabricus, genius. This operation redounds to the honor of the physician and places him on footing with the gods. <laughs> Pretty much you can get a tattoo of that across my chest and be okay with it. Um, but here are your indications for the trach pretty much. Bypass obstruction. You've got a big mass, upper airway that you can't get down to the airway. Neck trauma. Anything same way, you can't secure that airway. Uh, Long-term mechanical ventilation. We see this all the time in the MICU and the SICU. You have these patients that just can't get off the vent. It seems to be easier just to get a 
trach in them. Pulmonary toilet, just people that with a lot of secretions, can't get it up, um, mostly MR patients. Uh, prophylaxis, we talked about this, people with myasthenia that get these crises all the time that come in, getting constant intubations. Sometimes people just have trach because it's easier when they get one of these crises. And then severe sleep apnea, if your CPAP doesn't work, you don't want it, you just get a trach, easier. Um, complications, these are kind of the three cases we'll talk about that were kind of presented earlier on is uh, stricture and obstruction, dislodgement, and this tracheonominate artery fistula. Stenosis and obstruction uh, most commonly occurs at the stoma or right above the stoma, but normally will not make its way above the vocal cords. Will normally just uh, stay below the cords. About three to twelve percent develop clinically significant stenosis. Um, most people will present kind of two different ways that I've seen in literature and stuff like that. They get either acute hypercarbic respiratory distress. So these people with trachs in are in respiratory distress. Um, you kind of look at them, their SATs are okay, but you get maybe an ABG and their CO2 is like 150. They can tolerate pretty high CO2s because sometimes it can be very chronic uh, and people can just tolerate very high um, CO2 levels. The other type that I think we might miss sometimes or not think about is this subacute distress weeks after decannulation. So these people got their trach taken out because they got over whatever illness they had, they didn't want it anymore. They come in, you know, when did you get your trach taken out? Oh, a couple weeks ago, I just been having this cough, not breathing right. A lot of times these people get diagnosed as bronchitis and they really had a stenosis at the time that they were decannulated and um, we kind of get missed until it gets into this acute phase where they're requiring intubation and then you're in a whole mess where you're trying to put a normal ET tube or a little bit smaller down this little narrow hallway. Um, they used to have about, it was documented in literature, I don't know if that's right, 75% of patients with trachs got stenosis, but then when they went over to this high volume pressure cuffs, uh, it's dropped only now 2% with stenosis, I, and this was that needed some sort of intervention repair. Um, for, to get significant stenosis, your lumen of your trach has to be down less than five millimeters, and this is about 50 to 75 percent of the normal diameter of the tracheostomy. Um, and that's when, at that five millimeters, when you'll get strider and when you'll get signs of uh, respiratory distress. Yeah. Um, they say because one of the big causes for stenosis is actually um, infection and granulomas and things like that. And so if they, the, these balloons, they'd keep secretions and stuff like that would cause irritation around. So it's above where the balloon is. That's what. Um, the main treatment is pretty much secure the airway any way you can. Um, whether it's from above, like we talked about. Um, sometimes we had a patient when I was in the MICU that came in, real bad tracheal stenosis. Um, he was not uh, oxygenating well. We could not, he was, airway was going in and out. We, what we did, he had a trach, and what we had to end up doing was place a 5-0 ET tube through the trach to and what that did, it bypassed this stenosis because your trach is only, you know, maybe that long down right here. If you put an ET tube past that, you can pass, bypass the area of stenosis and hopefully oxygenate uh, the patient 
in the meantime while you're calling your pulmonologist to get you know dilation or something. Deep suctioning, we talked about this a lot of times you can get just um, heavy secretions or mucus plugs that you can suction out real easily and this should be one of the first things you do after oxygen in a patient that has a trach. Uh, and then I talked about the placement of longer, smaller, I mean narrower ET tube past the area of obstruction. Uh, next, dislodgement. Um, really, it's obvious the cause is it falls out for whatever reason. Um, the normal trach change, anyone know when, let's say you get a trach, what day does the ENT doc or the pulmonologist come in and replace it or do a trach change normally? It's, what I've seen is they do five to seven, and that's when they think that the, pa the passage is kind of, you don't get that false passage as much anymore. So about a week when you can feel comfortable that, you know, if this trach fall out, fall out, that's not English, <laughs> uh, fell out, then you can just hopefully just place it back in. Um, now if you're in, so a lot of times we'll see these patients that have had their trachs for a long period of time coming in the ER, so we can hopefully just place it back in. I'm talking about in the ICU when you guys are on the floors and stuff like that. You get this patient that just had a trach a week ago. You, know, ago. you got to be very careful about that false passage. But pretty much. But a week later, they replace it anyway routinely. Routinely. So it ought to be, you ought to be able to replace it routinely after a week. Is that your After a week is what my impression is looking at the um, different things around that. After a week, the passage is pretty much has secured itself that you don't have to worry as much about that false passage. Always you can obviously create it if you try to jam in a trach that maybe is too big or goes the wrong angle, you can always create a false passage. And by false passage what I mean is going into the sub-Q tissue, you're obviously not oxygenating um, the airway. You might actually get SATs that are okay, so after you always do a trach change you want to get an x-ray and make sure you're in the right position. Um, they recommend passing any sort of tube into that open wound, whether it be a lot of places recommend doing a NG tube because you can see the air and the condensation in the tube to make sure you're in the airway and then you can pass something over that. Um, bougie seems like a really good idea that it would definitely work. You could feel you're in the right place and it's long enough and narrow enough that if there's stenosis. Um, next, the other thing is to best do this under you know, direct visualization. If you could get our bronch that we have, pull that out, look, make sure you're in the right place, you could pass a tube easily through that other way. And then remember, you can always secure the airway from above. Uh, next is this tracheonominate artery fistula. Uh, this is like something that you will only hear about with trachs. I don't see there's any other time when you'd have to worry about this. And it's so rare that it really, I don't know if we'll ever see one. Have anyone, have you guys ever seen one? Okay. I have you have? How old, how long after their trach? It was like a month after. Having okay, yeah. Yeah, and we'll, there's more slide. there's more points to come on the slides. Okay, sorry. Okay, okay. Um, I know. So, yeah, <laughs> there's a question slide at the end that you can, I'll put question slash, give me your input, James Howard. Um, so this, when a lot of times people get their trach put in, they'll have a little bit of bleeding around it, you know, oozing. That's a lot of times very normal if the, if the way they do it, with especially these percutaneous trachs now. 
So you really need to think about this 48 hours after the procedure. Um, it's caused by a low, low trach. So a lot of times they talk about people with big fat necks that they couldn't get this in. They had to put it a little bit further down. I'll show you the anatomy about why that's important. Or sometimes kids get this that don't really, like the Downs kids that don't really have much of a neck. They got to go a little bit further down than they normally would. You should think about this in. Um, like less than 1% of patients will have this and it's documented in like case reports. So if you ever get it, you should write a report about it. Um, most likely three to four weeks after placement. So a month is about when you should start thinking about this. Um, and mortality is 80 really to 100% and that's with aggressive treatment. That's, you know what's going on, you get them to the operating room or you get, you do the best you can and we'll go over the treatment of this, but it's still you're at 80%. So the key is when a lot of times these will present as a little bit of bleeding from their trach. Two weeks out, maybe it got irritated. You look at it, there's a little irritation. Bleeding, there's no active bleeding that you can see. Patient looks stable. You have to think about this because what you get is a, what's called a sentinel bleed. Same way as in we get people with aneurysms in their head, they'll get what's called a sentinel bleed and they'll have a little bit of headache, but you get the CT and everything looks okay. And then they present with a massive bleed. Same way with this. They'll have this one episode, a little bit of bleeding. Maybe someone was suctioning, they got a little blood up or they noticed a little blood around the trach. You have to think about this in the right time period. Um, and pretty much management right away is just thinking about it and thinking that the, that's what you have. And then the main thing is you place an ET tube from above, you overinflate the balloon pretty much as much as you can to try to hopefully get past the point of where the bleeding is and tamponade that. And that's your best bet to try to get them to the OR. And then what you do is you put a finger through the, the trach hole and you pretty much just press up against the sternum to try to put direct pressure on it and just that's pretty much the only treatment option that I saw in looking through like a bunch of different books and papers. It seems like that we'd have something better but so you put one tube with a balloon and then a finger. Intubate them. Yeah, intubate them with an E2 tube, inflate that balloon as much as you can and put a finger through the hole. Just hold it. <laughs> just hold it. Phone in the other side. Yeah. So here's where it is. Um, this kind of picture is weird. But here's your trach, your hole. Here's the balloon that comes down. And this is a low, this can be a low trach, what I was talking about. Here's the arch of your aorta. I have like a little thing here that I can do instead of just standing in front of it. Um, there's your arch, so it's pretty low. And here's your anonymous artery that comes off. And here's kind of a better view. So if this balloon is overinflated or irritating or ill-fitting is what they say, you'll get this uh, fistula right here and the first time it opens up you'll get this bleed that kind of gives you that sentinel or herald bleed and then it'll kind of tamponade itself for a little bit until it obviously opens up again and then you're kind of in trouble and I don't know if you guys can see this but this is the um, this is kind of the algorithm as what we should follow when you have someone you know anywhere from two days to a month or I would send it out to two months out after a trach you have a, someone that comes in pretty much, let's start with not massive hemorrhage, but a bleed, a little bleed from their trach site. You have to think about it. If you suspect that it's a, um, the fist, then tracheal fistula, then you just go straight to the OR, they said, for rigid bronch. Because the best thing is to get direct visualization with your pulmonology team or your surgical team. 
Um, then if you see a bleed there, what they can do is, if it's just a mild bleed, they can just um, try to put pressure on it with the trach and, or with the bronchoscopy until they can get to the uh, OR for surgical repair. But then if they don't see anything, then they'll obviously look for other things, possibly get an angio. Um, now if you have a massive bleed, which is what we worry about here, this is where you get your 80 to 100% mortality, you, um, you hyperinflate the trach itself first. Pump that balloon up as big as you can because you assume that the balloon is A, what caused your fistula to happen in the first place, that's the area of where it's at, and then the only thing that stopped this sentinel bleed was the balloon being pumped up. So you, what you try to do is overinflate that balloon as much as you can while you're getting ready to intubate this person. Then, if the bleeding stops with just that trach balloon pumped up, you go straight to the OR. No questions. And I actually was at a conference last week and they had a vascular surgeon talking about this case exactly. And he's like, he would rather take every trach person with bleeding from the trach site, he said he takes them to the OR just off the bat if it's within a month. This guy was a little bit out there, but um, that's kind of what he said. Then, if the bleeding continues, we go into this. What you intubate the patient from above, then you try to get your ET tube that is coming from above past that area where you think the fistula is. Um, so past that balloon. You might have to deflate the balloon to do this. And at the same time, you have, to, you have to remove this trach. So as you're putting in your ET tube, you have to have someone take out the trach at the same time. You get it past where you think the fistula is. You're not worried about oxygenating at this point. I mean, if you right main stem them, that's what happens. But you want to get that balloon up and you, you know, 10 cc's, whatever you can get in there. And then you do what Havoc talked about. You put the, your finger through the trach opening and you compress whatever you can feel the trach up against the sternum. So just pressure like that and then you get to the OR somehow. There's, mm -hmm. So you're using your finger to anterior to the ET And push it up against the sternum. You can fit both your finger and the ET tube through in the trachea at the but same the time. The whole purpose is to tamponade, right? Mm -hmm. You're losing the balloon, balloon past the site of the fistula to hopefully get some sort of tamponade on it and then your finger to push up. So you're distal to the bleed, you have the balloon trying to tamponade whatever going on. Aspirating down. Aspirating down and to hopefully get a little bit of tamponade on it and then your finger is also superior to it to try to get the bleeding stopped that way. So you don't want the balloon on top of where it's bleeding? No, you want it distal to where you think the bleed is. And like I say, you will probably never see this. You might, s one person in the room, I guess, has already seen it, so we should not even be talking about this now. <laughs> Thank you. I'm yeah. Well, it's hard to know where you think the site's going to be. So they say to intubate the person, you, because if you try to guess it exactly right and you're above the site, you have pretty much wasted that option. It's useless at this point. And now your finger, you're doing two things with the same, you know, your finger and the balloon are pretty much doing the same thing. So there's no way you're going to be able to directly visualize where this bleed is coming from. So you try to put it past where it's coming from, and then you're going to probably still have oozing and bleeding coming up, you know, and then you try to use your finger just to hold pressure like you would anything else. And these things don't ooze. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's not oozing. Arterial it's bleed off right off the, take off of the aorta. Right. Yeah, it's like a, like the exercise. Yeah. Thing 
And then they're going, you know, they're going menial sternotomy. They're opening them up. They're just trying to clamp everything. You know, yeah, it's really, I mean, there was no talk about doing like an ED thoracotomy for cross clamping the aorta on this. I don't, that's not going to help you because you're too low. There's nothing you can do other than just hold it, trying to hold direct pressure. And, you know, this is something that you have like minutes. This is not something, oh, I got an hour to kind of sit here and do it. I, let me send them down to angio. I think I have time. No, that's why you see where angio is on this. Like if you think someone has a sentinel bleed, angio is so far down below direct visualization. We don't even, you, you shouldn't be ordering like a angio of the neck on these patients. If your surgeon or your pulmonologist wants to do that, then they can do that in the ICU, but they, should, they need to bronch these patients first. All right. Any other questions on kind of saving a life? No? Okay. Okay, so summary. Um, ABCs, always first important. Uh, don't forget, you always have the airway from above if you need it. Um, suction these patients if their SATs are low, because a lot of times they'll have mucus plugs and um, things like that. And then always be wary of this sentinel bleed and just always have it on your radar whenever we see it. Okay? So, and then maybe we'll do the other lectures some other time.